But we did, uh, we have left off in Mark chapter 13, three weeks ago. Uh, if you remember the context, Jesus and his disciples, they just left the temple, right? And they, they were walking across uh, the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. And then Simon and Andrew and James and John, they came to Jesus privately. Uh, and they were saying in Mark chapter 13, verse 4, they were saying to Christ, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? You know, Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple. And as Jesus is speaking to them, and he's only a couple days from being crucified, uh, his disciples were naturally curious about the last days. And like I said last time, this is a natural curiosity, and it's a good curiosity. You know, we, we want to know what's going to happen. We want to know what's going to be. We want to know what to watch out for. We want to know when all of this is going to take place. It's a real natural thing. And uh, that's what they were asking. And so through our study of Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to, to 13, as Jesus was revealing some things to his disciples, we see that there was four uh, major things to be watching for. Uh, we, la, the last time we were together, the main theme was we can know that the end is near when the old covenant has been fulfilled. That's that, you know, Jesus coming, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, the temple being destroyed, right? No more sacrifices. That was one of the signs. The old covenant has been fulfilled. The next was when, when we see false people leading many astray, we see that today, and it's going to be increasing. Uh, when the world is falling apart all around us, natural disasters and wars and rumors of wars, and also when the faithful endure persecution. So those were four signs uh, to be watching for that the end is near, right? And we're watching for those today, and they are happening, and they're only going to increase as Jesus comes closer. And then Jesus goes on to continue uh, teaching his disciples, and then what we're going to be looking at today is that was, you know, we know that Jesus is going to be, is, his coming is near, but now we're going to be looking at when, when Jesus is, the day is actually here, and he's going to give us three major signs today that he's actually here. The last day is here, the very last days. And so I'm going to pray because we need the Lord's help. I especially need his help this morning uh, to preach to you and also for my voice but also for your ears as well. So let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Our Father, we, we come before you this morning as, as the redeemed, as those who you love, as those who you have saved out of our darkness. Lord, we come before you this morning in repentance and faith, knowing that it's you that, that grants it to us, knowing that it's you that does this work within us. Lord, we come before you and we lay down our lives at your feet this morning and we beg for you to feed us. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy, your grace, how you, how you love to feed your children and teach us. And Lord, we pray again this morning on this Lord's Day that you would especially feed us again today. Lord, we want to be changed. We want to be changed into the image of your Son. And we know that comes by hearing your word and your spirit using it to transform our hearts. So, Lord, we pray that you would renew our minds. We pray that you would change the desires of our heart, and that through that, you would also change our actions. Lord, we love you this morning. Be with my voice. Uh, be with the ears. Let those who have ears hear this morning. Let us see the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. So again, the four indicators from last week was, right, the old being fulfilled, the false leading astray, the world falling apart, 
and persecution of the faithful. And, and again, we've seen that happen. We see that happening, and we see it continuing and increasing in intensity and regularity as we get nearer to the end. But this next uh, list that we're going to be looking at here today, uh, it gives us a list, basically, Jesus gives us a list of things that haven't happened yet. Uh, we might have a small taste of some of these things, but they haven't been fulfilled. They're not happening yet. They are to come, and these are a big deal. These are a really big deal. Friends, we can know that the end is here. Jesus is showing that. And we're going to start with verse 14, just one verse at the very beginning. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Friends, we can know that the end is here when the Antichrist profanes and desolates. And so we need to be aware. Now, this abomination of, of desolation that we're looking at here, it's not something that we often study. It's not something that we often focus a lot of time on in the scriptures. You know, it's one of those less clear passages. Right? It can be difficult to understand. Some people land here, some people land over there, depending on their end times perspective. So before we even begin, I want to just try something with you guys. I want you to hold up both of your hands. I only have one, but you guys can hold up both your hands. All right? Hold up both your hands in the air. I know some of us are kind of Baptistic in our background. We can have our hands in the air. It's okay. Um, what I want you guys to do is to take your right fist... I want you to pretend like you're holding like a tennis ball or something like that. And close that fist. Hold on as tight as you can. Nobody's going to get that ball out of your hand, okay? And then out of the other one, which would be over here, um, keep that hand open. You're still holding on to the ball, but you know what? It's open. You know, it's, it's, it's something where somebody could come along. They could probably pluck that out of your, your hand. You can put your hands down. Another reason that I wanted you to do that is when we're talking about uh, last things. When we're talking about the end times, this is open-handed stuff, okay? Open-handed things. You know, when we talk about closed-hand things, that's our, that's our core essential uh, doctrines, uh, things that are, that, are, that are key to the faith of what it means to be a Christian. So in, we have closed-hand, we have open-hand. In our, in our closed-hand is our essential core doctrines, things that define true Christianity, like the deity of Christ, right? The Trinitarian nature of God, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. These are what we call first order doctrines, right? If you don't believe those things, you're not a Christian. These are things that we have to understand and, and hold on to, and we protect, and we don't let go. But we also have second and third ordered doctrines, understandings that are varied but important, right? They, they don't have the same repercussions as, say, a first order doctrine. And so when it comes to eschatology, what I'm saying is, is uh, when we have these perspectives about the future, things that are less clear, it's more of an open hand, right? Because they are veiled in mystery. They are veiled in symbolism. They are, are veiled in, in apocalyptic language. And so we hold these things with an open hand because they are less clear. 
So whether you consider yourself to be a dispensational, an amillennial, a premillennial, a postmillennial, a covenantal, a pro- progressive covenantal, a preterist, remember that these things are important to study and try to understand, and it's good to land somewhere, but there's secondary issues, if not tertiary issues. Now, some of you, that, that, that list of things I just said, you've never heard maybe some of those things before, and you know what, that's okay. Um, you may be saying, what are you talking about, pastor? And I'm just going to say, don't worry. You're going to be totally okay through all of this, right? As long as you believe what I believe, right? Everybody's going to be okay, right? Open hand, open hand. Now, the reason I want to give you that, just that bit of insight is, is because our perspective of the end times always affects the way we study any given text, especially when it comes to eschatological texts. And so my goal this morning is not, try, not, not to try to nail down every fuzzy, intricate detail, but just to highlight what's clear, to highlight what's clear, to highlight what's knowable. And so that brings us back to verse 14. And let's just read that again. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, right? Run for the hills. And so we see this terminology, this abomination of desolation. And we see that Jesus is warning us. He's saying, but when you see him and he's standing where he shouldn't be, what's going on here? I think think this could seem very cryptic to all of us, this abomination of desolation. But as you study all of redemptive history and you study the the prophecies in the Old Testament, you can see that the abomination of desolation is is tied directly to apocalyptic prophecies in the Old Testament, especially in Daniel. In Daniel's prophecies about the future of Israel and the end times, he mentions this abomination of desolation three times in chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. I got some verses up there behind me. Chapter Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, the last half of 27, he says, And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Daniel eleven thirty one, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Daniel twelve eleven. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. And so we see Jesus referring to this abomination of desolation. And his disciples would have known about these prophecies. And in their minds, they would have most likely been thinking that these prophecies of Daniel have already taken place. They've already been fulfilled. If you know your church history or even just world history, you know that in 168 BC, there was this Seleucid king. His, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he captures, uh, he captures Jerusalem, captures the Jewish temple, massacres. Many Jewish people enters the temple and he desecrates the temple. What he does is he, he erects an altar of Zeus 
over top of the burnt offering. And then he takes a pig, which to a Jew is the most unclean animal. And he sacrifices this swine over top of the burnt offering. And then he goes and he forces the Jewish priests to eat it. This was an abomination. So detestable by the Jewish people that they then considered the temple an abomination. And they would abandon it. And the temple would be desolate. And this went on until the day that they once again regained power. Uh, If you know anything about the Maccabean revolt, Judas Maccabeus, right? They they, they came and, and took back the city. They fought and they won. They recaptured the city, they recaptured the temple, and then they purified the temple, right? Festival of lights with the Jews, relighting of the lights, symbolizes the cleansing of the temple. But it was an abomination of desolation. And so when we're looking at Daniel, we see that yes, like with the disciples, yes, Daniel's prophecy was, was being fulfilled or has been fulfilled already. But was it fully fulfilled? And the fact that Jesus here tells them to expect another abomination of desolation points to a greater future event. You see, this took place 200 years before Jesus is talking to his disciples. But Jesus is talking about a time to come. There's going to be another abomination of desolation. The first abomination by Antiochus Epiphanes is really just a foreshadowing of a greater abomination of desolation. Which we understand to be coming through the final Antichrist. The final Antichrist who is going to be a great deceiver, who will come, he's going to pretend to be a peacemaker with the Jews, he's going to make an alliance with the Jewish people, he's going to rebuild their temple, but instead of taking them to worship the true and living God, he's going to seek the worship for himself. He's standing in the place he ought not to be. The text says he'll be standing where he will not Ought to be. Matthew's gospel gives us a little more insight into this. Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the what? Standing in the holy place. Standing in the holy temple. He's going to be standing in the place of worship. He's going to be desecrating the temple with his own profane worship. We know that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., This Antichrist is going to come back. He's going to deceive. He's going to rebuild the temple. And he's going to put himself in place to be worshipped. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4 calls uh, this same person, calls him a son of destruction, calls him a man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, it says... He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now the big question we have in our mind is about this abomination of desolation, about this antichrist, about this son of destruction, about this man of lawlessness. Who is this guy going to be? 
When is this going to take place? When is he coming? Is he, is he already here? You know, people throughout the ages have speculated all kinds of ideas. And I know a guy on TV today who's constantly trying to string together the connections, right? Naming certain leaders as potential antichrists and on and on and on. People are eating it up. But the point here is Jesus doesn't give us those details. He doesn't tell us who this guy is going to be. He's, what he's telling us is to watch out for him. What he's doing is he's warning us about him, warning us to be watching out. And then as he's warning us, what does he say when we're to see him? He says, run. He says, flee. Run to the hills. And Mark inserts right there, let the reader understand. Again, this points to future. You know, the reader of, of this gospel is the church in Rome. Quite a few years after um, this is being said by Jesus. And today, you guys have the Bible in front of you. Mark, through the Holy Spirit, is writing to you. Let the reader understand. This is for you to understand. This is future. This is coming. Let the reader understand. And so in a sense, it's really even not really for his disciples at that time. It is, but it isn't. Mark wants the future readers of this gospel to be watching, to be ready. This is for you and me today. And so as you and I read this, we need to focus less on, on who this guy may be when he's coming, and we need to be focusing more on Jesus' warning that there is one coming in the very last days, this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness who is going to seek the place of God. He's going to seek to be worshipped. He's going to profane. He's going to desolate. And who's behind all of this? 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-10. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Satan is behind this. Right? This is his plan to come and deceive. Satan has been a deceiver since the beginning. And he's going to send this person, and people are going to follow him. He's going to make peace, he's going to make some kind of a treaty. The Jews are going to be excited. The temple is being rebuilt. We can restore sacrifices again. And then what happens? The Antichrist stands in the place of worship. So friends, we can know that the end is here when the Antichrist profanes and desolates. We need to be aware. Now as you study the pertinent scriptures in Daniel and in Revelation, this Antichrist is set to arrive in the middle of what is known as the tribulation. Okay? Verses 15 to 23 are going to give us insight into this time. And so through that, you and I are going to have a second sign that the end is here. And the second sign is this, that the tribulation destroys and deceives. And we need to be on guard. 
The tribulation is going to destroy and it's going to deceive and we need to be on guard. Verse 15, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Friends, this, uh, this tribulation is going to be so sudden and so severe that waiting and staying is not an option. Jesus' warning here is nothing less than immediate. It is absolute urgent retreat. Do you hear that here in this text? There is no time He's saying there, there's no time. To, if you're up on your roof, remember they had uh, the, the, the Palestinian uh, buildings at that time. You go up on your roof at nighttime to cool yourself uh, from the day. And they had outside stairs. And so if the tribulation was to come. There's no time to go down those stairs into your house and grab your stuff. The, there is no time at all. It's urgent, urgent retreat. You wouldn't, if you were out in the fields working, you can't run home to grab your jacket. You have to go now. And he's talking about pregnant women, nursing moms. Hear his heart, concern for them. They are going to be particularly vulnerable. Why? Because they're going to be slower to retreat. They have their babies. They have their nursing. It's going to be harder for them. These are going to be the most horrific days ever. They're going to be the worst days ever on this earth. And so Jesus says in verse 19, he says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. You know, if you remember back to the story of Noah in Genesis 5, Remember, God was judging the world because of the, the, the sinfulness of mankind. And so he brings this global flood and he's drowning the whole population of the earth except for one family, right? Noah and his family. It was horrific. It's terrifying. It's total. But as horrific as that was, Jesus is saying this tribulation is going to be worse. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine. I'm thinking about a global flood. How horrifying that is. And Jesus says this is going to be worse. As you study Revelation uh, chapter 6 on through 16, you will see so many horrific events taking place. We've got, we're going to have massive earthquakes like you have never seen on this earth. They're going to destroy many corners of the earth. We're going to have hail and firestorms mixed with blood. A third of the earth's vegetation is going to be destroyed. Oceans and rivers are going to be turned to blood. And all of the creatures that are within those are going to die. A third of the earth's water is going to become poisonous, undrinkable. People are going to be covered in sores and disease until one third of the whole earth's population is going to die. This is great tribulation. This is worse than the flood. 
And on top of that, the Antichrist is going to be revealed. Countless demons are going to roam the earth, terrorizing the world, destroying whoever they can. And this is going to go on for three and a half years. Jesus says there, there's going to be nothing like this. Nothing like this has ever taken place before. This is the ultimate great tribulation just before Jesus comes to reign on this earth. What's going on here is God in his sovereignty is pouring out his wrath on the earth. Why? Because of the sinfulness of mankind. Because of evil. But what I love here is that even in all of that, he is so right to do that. He is high and holy. And we have sinned, treasonous sin against our holy God. And so this is a dose of his wrath upon the earth, worse than the flood. But even in the core of this, you even see God showing mercy. Verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Before the whole earth is destroyed, Jesus says, God's going to abruptly stop this tribulation. Why is he going to stop it? For the sake of the elect. For the sake of his children. For the sake of those who he has chosen. At this time, there's going to be people who are going to come to know the gospel. They're going to come to know Jesus. They're still alive. He's going to shorten the days to show mercy upon them. He's going to stop this tribulation like has never been seen before. Another thing that's going to take place at this time is there's going to be mass confusion. Mass deception that's going to be taking place. As we see this Antichrist wreaking havoc, we're going to also see that, that evil people are going to join his forces and take advantage of the situation. So as the elect, as God's people, are frantically looking for Jesus... Like, he's coming soon. We've, we've seen it in the scriptures. He's coming soon. Where are you, Jesus? People are going to take advantage of that. Some are going to be spreading lies that he's already returned. Some are going to be pretending to be the Messiah. And in the power of Satan, some are even going to be performing miracles and signs and wonders, leading people astray. Jesus says in verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But Jesus says, but be on guard. I have told you all things Beforehand, Just think about that for a minute. Think about how tempting amidst this great tribulation, amidst all of this suffering, 
How tempting is it to believe somebody else when they're going to say, hey, Jesus is here, the Messiah is here, let's go to him. How tempting is that going to be for you? Jesus says it's so tempting that it could, it could even tempt the elect away. Those who have been saved. Now we know that those who are saved by Jesus are forever saved. And he's preaching a point here. That's how tempting this is. That even the elect are being tempted. This is the work of Satan. This is the work of the one who was a deceiver from the beginning. Uh, Satan who masks, masquerades as an angel of light. But what is Jesus doing? He's warning us here, don't believe it. Do not believe it. Be on guard. And he says, I have told you these things beforehand. He's telling us to warn us so that we're ready so that we do not believe it. Be on guard. As, as horrific as that tribulation is going to be, what's more horrific to Jesus is that a false Christ would lead you directly to hell. Tribulation destroys and deceives. We need to be on guard. Now, as I stated before, there are many different views about the end times. Different people arrive at different conclusions. And as we're focused on the tribulation, uh, we, a lot of us differ as to how this is going to take place. This is one of the more major areas of disagreement. I've got an infographic I want to put up behind me to help you kind of just understand. I'm a visual person, and uh, these kinds of things really help me. If you like this, uh, just, just Google visual theology, Tim Challies, love all of that stuff. But here you can see three main views of the end times. Uh, we got premillennialism, we've got postmillennialism, we got amillennialism, and then inside of those are many different flavors as well. Uh, and then you can see on the timeline there, you have the cross of Christ, you have his, uh, we have Pentecost, and you also have uh, the tribulation. So on the top line, you see this tribulation that we're talking about in Scripture uh, right at the center. Of course, this is a future. We're in the church age. We're in the church age. Amen, church? Church age. And we got a tribulation, tribulation of seven years, right? Three and a half is the great tribulation. And then after that is the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth with his people. That's why we call it pre-millennialism. And then we have post-millennialism, right? They get a different understanding that the whole church age is, is a tribulation. And then amillennialism, tribulation is, is more symbolic. So uh, the next slide really shows you where we are as a church. We are inside of our, our distinctives as a church. We are pre-millennial in our understanding. Again, open-handed. Uh, and inside of that, you've got different flavors as well. And you have this around the tribulation. You have a difference of understanding of whether or not the church goes through the tribulation. Right? Are you pre-trib? Are you mid-trib? Are you post-trib? Meaning, we have this understanding that... Uh, that there is a, uh, a rapture uh, through Scripture. We're going to get to that here just in a little bit. But that's really kind of where we are in our understanding as a church. I know if you want to study more of the three main views, 
or you want to hear more about it, uh, Dre Kashevsky would just love to take you for coffee and spend all afternoon talking about this, and he'll, he'll let you know all about it. But as far as these three perspectives go, um, the, the, like I said, the doctrine of our church falls within the premillennial perspective. Again, it's not a primary thing. It's more of a secondary thing. But we believe that Jesus is going to return at the end of the Great Tribulation, and he's going to reign on this earth in his millennial kingdom with us, thousand years of peace, premillennial. Now, as you can see, with, within our premillennial view, there, there is differences about the tribulation with respect to the church. Now, let me ask you this. Do you believe that God is going to put his church through the great tribulation? Well, as you study other scriptures like 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, there is this hint of a rapture. Again, it's not completely clear, but there's a, a hint uh, that just before the tribulation, the scriptures talk about in a twinkling of an eye, that the church is going to be caught up or raptured into heaven until when? Until the tribulation is over. It happens to be where, where I land. Again, open-handed. And there's some that believe that, that, that this rapture, this, this gathering up of the saints into heaven uh, is going to take place mid-tribulation. And there's some that believe it's going to be post. And so, like I said at the very beginning, with the clearest of texts, we, we hold on to our primary doctrines. This is a secondary, this is a tertiary doctrine. We hold this open Handed, but as we're studying the scriptures, again, not fully clear, we do see some evidence for this gathering of the church. And then Jesus will come back just before, at the end of the tribulation, just before the millennial kingdom. So overall, you know, we could spend all kinds of days studying stuff and arriving at different conclusions. But what does Jesus really want us to focus on? Right? We, could, we, could, we can look at all these details forever, come up, come up with all kinds of conclusions. Overall, what I see Jesus uh, being concerned with is not the mysteries, not the intricacies, but rather what he says in verse 23. And you need to circle that. He says, but be on guard. Be on guard. I have told you all things Beforehand, Friends, whether the church is going to be raptured before, mid, or after, Jesus says, be on guard. We need to be careful, yes, not to believe the schemes of the devil, not to believe false claims of Christ's return, not to be swayed by signs and wonders, but what? Be on guard. Jesus is warning here. He's been warning throughout all of chapter 13 that he is coming back. We need to be on guard. So we know that the end is here. Again, from the beginning, when the Antichrist is pro profaning and desolating, we know the end is here when the tribulation is destroying and deceiving, and we definitely are going to know the end is here when. We're going to know that the end is here when Christ returns. 
When Christ returns in power and glory, again, we need to be ready. We need to be ready, verse 24. But in those days, future days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the power in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. It's amazing. As great as this great tribulation is and how it will be cut short for the sake of the elect, is there nothing more sweet, more exciting, more exhilarating than knowing that the Son of Man, the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is going to come in power and glory for us. His elect. You see that being repeated all the time. His elect, those who he chose, those who he loves, those who he saves in the mystery of the gospel of salvation. His elect, he is coming for you. No matter how terrible that tribulation is, he's coming for you. This is the day we're waiting for. This is the hope that we have as Christians, right? This is the joy that drives us. This is, this is what drives us to sing of the glory of Jesus Christ. This is what fuels our hearts. That God so loved us. That he sent his only son. He sends him to die on a cross for our sins. And then he's going to return in power and glory. Bring us to himself. This is what it's all about. That great and glorious day that we look forward to. You know, after living in this broken universe with decaying bodies, with disease, with cancer, after suffering broken relationships and turmoil and strife, and then we're reading about this tribulation, these, these great trials. There is a great day coming where the stars and the moon and the sun are going to lose all of their sustaining light. And just imagine that moment. Just imagine that sunrise of sunrises as our brilliant, gleaming King Jesus crusts over that eastern horizon and he comes on the clouds. Coming in power, coming for you and for me. This is beautiful. Friends, all of humanity, all of the universe, all of creation, all of history, and all of the scriptures has been anticipating this day. It's the most glorious day. This has been promised 
and prophesied and predicted more than any other thing in Scripture. If you look at both the Old and the New Testament, and you look at the prophecies, there's a lot of prophecies about Jesus coming to die on the cross. There is more prophecies about the Son of Man coming back. George Sweeting says this, he says, more than a fourth of the Bible is predictive prophecy. Approximately one-third of it has been yet to be fulfilled. Both the Old and New Testaments are full of promises about the return of Jesus Christ. There's over 1,800 references appearing in the Old Testament, and 17 Old Testament books give prominence to this theme. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return. That means one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. For every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight on Christ's second coming. This is a big deal. This is what it's all about. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been anticipating. It's the most anticipated day ever, according to the scriptures, according to all of history, that Christ is going to return in power and glory. Are you ready? Do you believe it? Have you stood back and marveled at the beauty of the gospel? This glorious plan of redemption from beginning to end that although you and I sinned against the holy God and we were separated from him, he came down for us because we couldn't go up to him. We couldn't. We tried. Do you believe that Jesus is the only Savior? Do you believe that he's coming back? Do you believe that he's the only way? Do you believe that he came to live the perfect, sinless life for you? And that he died the death that you and I deserve on that cross. So that we could be counted among the elect. This elect that God loves, that he counts the days short. That he saves and he comes back in glory and power. Friends, today is the day of salvation. What are you waiting for? You got everything to lose. You can't lose this. Are you ready? Maybe you think that you need to be doing a bunch of good things. Right? Okay, I, I believe this. Now I got to start doing a bunch of good things in order to earn this salvation. That is an anti-gospel. That is not the real gospel. You cannot clean yourself up before a holy God. He has to do it for you. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Maybe you think that you need a special priest, some special person to come and touch you and, and give you some kind of words that's going to save you. Friends, we are justified by faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. Today is the day of salvation. That means that you cry out in repentance and faith, and you put all of everything that you have, you bank it all on the finished, perfected work of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross for your sins. 
Place all of your hope in him. Don't hope in this world. Don't hope in yourself. Ask the Lord to forgive you of all of your treacherous sins against him. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Are you ready? We need to believe. We need to repent. We need to love him. Live for him. So we ask you as a church, if, you, if you're not sure and you haven't done that, you need to do that now. Because this great and horrific tribulation, this great day that Jesus is coming back, it can come right now. Is it well with your soul? Horatio Stafford writes in his famous hymn, It Is Well. He says this, and this is my favorite section of the song. He says, O Lord, haste the day, hurry the day, haste the day when the faith, when my faith shall be sight. When the clouds are going to be rolled back as a scroll and the trump is going to resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Is your soul going to be well on that day? It is well with my soul. I pray that it is well with your soul. I can't wait for that day. That's why we sing, come Lord Jesus, come, come. We, want, we long for you to come for that day. So we definitely know that the end is near, or the end is here, rather, when Christ returns in power and glory. We know it's here when he returns in power and glory. But what are we going to do until that day, friends? Are we just going to stand in the streets? Are we going to climb a mountain just to watch the sky? Are we going to lay in our bed watching Netflix, drinking coffee? Jesus, come back, waiting to be raptured. Oh, what does Jesus say next? Verse 28, he says, he says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates, right? Jesus is coming. Verse 30, truly I say to you, when Jesus says truly I say to you, we listen up. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I believe this generation to mean the church. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Friends, we can trust Jesus Christ as with his everlasting word. Does Jesus tell the truth? Does he always tell the truth? His word is everlasting. Heaven and earth, this whole creation is going to be destroyed, but his, his word is going to go on forever and ever and ever. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, right, right? This is the original question from his disciples. He says, no one knows. He says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son but only the Father. Jesus is saying, I don't even know the day. For those who are overly concerned with the day, with the hour, trying to make the connections, claiming to, to have some kind of knowledge or insight, Jesus Christ doesn't even know the day he's coming back. That's in the knowledge of the mystery of the Trinitarian Godhead, in the responsibility of the Father, the Son doesn't even know. 
Friends, it's so tempting to take all of the writings of the last days, to sit and put them together, to study and to ponder, to try to make all kinds of connections and theories, trying to come up with the day or the hour. But Jesus says, I don't even know. So instead of us being fixated and entranced by the final details, Jesus says it's not about when. It's not about how. It's not about a time. It's not about a day or an hour. It's about how we wait. He says for the second time, verse 33, be on guard. Keep awake. It's not a time for sleeping. For you do not know when the time will come, he says. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, that's you and me, each with his work, you with your work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Friends, Jesus is saying here, Jesus has not saved you to a sleepy stagnancy. Jesus has saved you to an urgent expectancy, right? We are his servants. The story he's telling, we are the servants. You and I have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each one of us with our work, ministry of reconciliation. To do what? To stay awake. To exhaust ourselves with the work of the gospel. He says, verse 35, again, therefore, stay awake. For you don't know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Friends, this is an everyday, not just Sunday, not just small group night. This is a 24-7, round-the-clock, serving our master, serving our king. That's what Jesus is saying. Stay awake. Verse 36, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And he says, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Friends, in light of all that we have learned about signs of the age for, throughout chapter 13, and, and, and it's just a skim, it's just a surface, right? Knowing when the end is near, knowing when the end is here. Waiting for Jesus is a wakeful, watching, hoping, serving exhausting ourselves for the king of glory. Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to come back suddenly. Is he going to find us asleep? What Jesus is saying is that the truth church needs to live with urgency and expectancy. We need to be awake. We need to be awake. If Jesus was to return right now, is he going to find a sleepy servant or a wakeful warrior? Is he going to see you as a cozy consumer of the gospel or 
a gospel gladiator? Is he going to see you as a spectator or a player? Fighting every day for the gospel. Fighting every hour so that it can be shared. Doing the work of ministry. Growing in holiness together. Sharing the good news of Jesus with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors to the end of the earth. If Jesus was to return today, is he going to find you busy? If Jesus is going to return today, is he going to find you busy with the wrong things? Busy with achievement. Busy with entertainment. Busy with all kinds of earthly activities that consume us. Busy with self. Busy with sin. Busy with the world. But not busy with the work of the gospel. Is your view of salvation only good enough to get you to heaven, but not good enough to get you out of your bed for the purposes of the glory of Jesus Christ. If that's your view, you don't get the gospel. You don't understand it. I don't understand it, if that's my view. Jesus says to wake up. Friends, when Jesus saved you, as much as some of those Christianese songs on the radio try to proclaim, he didn't just save you to save you. He saved you to save others through you. He saved you from yourself and he saved you to the church and he entrusted you and me, all of us, with the gospel and he's privileged us privilege us to to be ambassadors of his name and he has then commanded us to go and to make disciples of all nations if making disciples of all nations is not one is not your primary objective in your life you're not understanding the gospel i'm not understanding the gospel yes he loved us dearly Yes, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. But his love is even greater than that. His love is greater than that. He saved you to save others through you. That's how it works. So if our master suddenly returns and he's going to, is he going to find us faithfully plowing the fields of the gospel? Is he going to see us reaping a harvest that we couldn't even imagine? Or is he going to find a bunch of sleepy servants? You know, the gospel and the church, it's, all, it's good enough for me to change me and to, to comfort me. But if our feet aren't going, if our mouths are not proclaiming, we're not understanding. Jesus says, stay awake. He says, what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. So when we're talking about this eschatology, all of these last things, it's so interesting, right? It's so attractive. It's like, what? We're getting some insight into all this stuff. Jesus says, stay awake. If you're going to take anything away from here today, it's stay awake. Be on guard. In the power of the Spirit, 
driven by the gospel, by the grace of God, stay awake. Friends, we want to be a church that makes an eternal difference. We want to be a church that is biblically obedient. We want to be a church that longs so much for God's glory that we can't help but share the gospel. When you look at the, look at the, the, the first century church in the New Testament, the governments, the authorities tell them not to share the gospel. What do they do? They share the gospel. They couldn't help but share the gospel. We have such a free nation. We get to share it wherever we want. And so as a church, I pray that you would join us in that effort, that the Lord would even use this in my heart to even drive me all the more. As the days are growing dark, as the signs of the age are increasing, are we all the more motivated to get after the work of Jesus Christ? Friends, we know that the end is here when the Antichrist profanes and desolates, when the tribulation destroys and deceives, when the Christ will return in power and glory. And how do we respond? The church needs to live with urgency and expectancy. When it comes to last things, when it comes to the end times, don't get caught up in the details. Really, don't. Jesus doesn't even know the day or the hour. Get caught up in the joy and the glory of Jesus Christ. Get caught up in that and be awake. And may the Lord, may the Lord find us faithful on that day. All to his glory alone. Let's pray.